Welcome. Here at The Bridge Church, we exist to help you connect to God, grow with family, and serve our city. We hope today's message will allow you to grow deeper in your connection to God. Enjoy the message. Well, I've been looking forward to this day. I'm really excited to start a new series. Uh, The series called God of Freedom, American Slavery and the Church. Some weighty stuff, a little bit different than what we're normally used to hearing on Sunday, but I think all the more reason why it's important to get into. Um, And and part of the reason why, even in beginning, I feel like I need to preface this with a little bit of a backdrop for making a case for why this is important for us to take time to communicate. And one of the reasons is that people are talking. As they say, the streets is talking. <laughs> and uh, one of the things that they're saying, I, you know, on a Friday, I went to the barbershop and um, I was, okay, yes, I have dreadlocks, but uh, I went there for my beard, okay? So, but it's always interesting because when I go to the barbershop, I go to a, a West Indian barbershop and, uh, and, and folks are very animated and passionate and there's usually some sort of debate that's going on in the mix, right? So I decided on Friday, I was working on the message and I was like, you know what? I've just been in this for so many hours. Let me take a break and just kind of decompress and just kind of, you know, hang out with the fellows for a little bit. So when I get there, I kid you not, I walk in the door and there's this conversation already happening, pretty heated and passionate about like the God of the Bible and if he's, a, you know, if he's the reason for slavery, right? And I'm like, you gotta be kidding me right now. And so we go, you know, we start getting in and of course, I'm like, well, this is the time to start talking about this, I guess. So we start, I, you know, I start interjecting. I, it only took me about 20 minutes to get what I had to get done, done, but I stayed there for two and a half hours. And more significantly, maybe they stayed there with me for that long, people who also had their haircuts done because they wanted to talk about this issue and it was such a a passionate thing that people were concerned about. And one of the things that that just came up was was this issue of God's character being on the line. Like, how can you believe something that was used in this way to oppress? And so, it just made its way, and I just started to realize, man, this is so critical and so important for us to share because people are talking. Uh, you can go to the next slide. And also, people are looking for answers. People are looking for answers uh, as well. Now, one of the reasons why this is key, and, and sometimes I think we hear the word slavery so often that we forget how... Uh, how significant of a historical moment in the history of the world it is. So let me just give you a little bit of backdrop about the transatlantic slave trade. Because you're talking about an experience that was the most brutal and oppressive form of human bondage that the world had ever seen. Wasn't the first time people enslaved other people. That had happened for a while and we're gonna get into that. But I mean, imagine the, the, the horror of being taken from your land, taken from everything you knew, your culture, your language, and put on the boat, you can go to the next slide, 
put on a boat where you're literally laid out like cargo and as many people as they could fit at one time, that's what they fit with no ability to move around, laying in your own excrement, in somebody else's own vomit as the sea goes up and down for months at a time, women being raped, having babies on board, throwing them overboard because they didn't want their babies to experience this horror. I mean, the tragedies just go on and on. It's, and, and in addition to that, this is something that literally changed the face of four continents directly. You had Europe, uh, European traders and merchants and slave traders who came down to Africa exchanging their goods for people. Then those people are taken to South America, the Caribbean, and the United States and, and, and sent there. And then the, the, the goods that those people create and, and they work for, and are forced to are then sent back to Europe. And on and on and on the cycle goes. One of the things, just to kind of help you wrap your mind around how shaping this has been to society, in 1850, 80% of every product that America made was made by the hands of a slave. 80%. At this point in time, slavery was a $3 billion industry. And it's something that far outseated what was just happening below the Mason-Dixon. There, there, there were slaves throughout every state or colony, including New York. We're going to get into that next week a little bit more. But one of the things that, like I said before, it's not that humanity had never seen slavery before. No, no, that, that, that's, that's something that had been there. But because of this cycle and because of the global nature of it and because of the, the justification that one would have to have in order to be on that slave ship, and, and, and see this human misery and, and, and just go along with your job, this was the source in the birth of what we now know as racism. You see, slavery wasn't born of racism. Racism came as a consequence of slavery. And so even beyond the um, physical trauma that we're talking about, there's this ideological and, 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 this, and this issue that of, of how even seeing ourselves and our identity that it comes to play as well. But not just, you know, but this was just one side of it. Of course, there was resistance. You can go to the next slide throughout this process. Some of y'all might heard of this brother named Toussaint Louverture before. He was the one who led, yeah, I knew I'd have at least one Haitian up in the mix um, <laughs> that was going to turn up for that, for Toussaint, brother Toussaint. He led a rebellion, I would say a revolution, in Haiti against who was considered the greatest military mind that Europe had ever produced. And this former slave and his band of very trained and skilled soldiers went and revolted against this land and Haiti is still free as today. It became the first colony that had been colonized that had um, actually achieved its freedom. So, and he, of course, he became an inspiration to, you know, because the word got out, right? Like, yo, y'all heard what Tucson did? 
This is 1791, 1792. Like, yo, um, if Tucson can do it, then maybe we can. And so it began this inspiration of rebellion and protest. And the reason why I bring that up is because even as the slave trade ended and as slavery became abolished in the United States in 1863, in England uh, two de three decades earlier, the struggle didn't end there. Because see, this idea of, of racism, of, of racial superiority, had continued to take root. And let's just be real. The reality is all that free labor and all that free produce that people had gotten accustomed to, they didn't want to give up so quickly. And so what followed after that, you know, we see from the 1870s and the uh, Reconstruction era and the birth of the Ku Klux Klan and this form of domestic terrorism designed to keep the hierarchy and the caste system in place continue to take root. And, and that follows up. So, so by the time we get to 1963, 100 years after the Emancipation Proclamation, you see Martin Luther King Jr. on the steps of the monument in, in D.C. saying, hey, the, the check that America wrote, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, bounce back insufficient funds. And we're here to collect on that check 100 years later. And of course, they were met with physical resistance from police and, and, and the government in, in the midst of that struggle, but the struggle didn't end there. Yes, a Voting Rights Act got passed. Yes, a Civil Rights Act got passed. But you see, that wasn't the end of the struggle as well. And over the last few years, we've seen a, a new resurgence of, 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 of movement, of activity around this idea that somehow black people deserve to be treated the same as white people in our country and that all of us deserve to be treated the same. And so this is, so, so it's fascinating to me when people think that from a context like that, that somehow when someone gets shot who's unarmed, that somehow we're supposed to take that as a case-by-case -case situation when centuries of a pattern of oppressive activity is taking place. No, there's a broader context for this, much broader. But beyond that though, as we get back to this issue of, of, of slavery and, and inception, and I go back to that barbershop, the key question that people were asking, is God part of the problem or the solution? <laughs> is God the problem? Because people are split on that thing. Is, is God the problem or is, is the solution? And unfortunately, one of the things that has transpired that, that we, can't, we can't just look at the economic um, damages, although there are definitely those, and when we see the income stratification in our country, it's broken up by the same racial categories that of who was on top and who was on the bottom. But we can't just look at that or even the cultural things, but there's something, there's actually a concept of PTSD, not post-traumatic stress disorder, but post-traumatic slavery disorder that actually is a thing that exists, that people realize that as a people, there's a collective trauma throughout the African diaspora that comes as a result of the psychological as well as physical trauma that has existed because of this dilemma. And so reason why that's so important is because it affects the conversation that you have in places like beauty salons and barbershops. So you see now, I'm not starting on equal ground or, or on just objective standards when we start talking about God and Christianity in this book because this is associated with something that was used to oppress. So the key question is, well, what does this book actually have to say about all that? 
Because, you know, just because something was used for bad purposes doesn't mean the thing is innately bad. I like to cook and, uh, I, you know, I use knives all the time. When you're chopping up onions and peppers, that's perfectly fine. There's only an issue when you start stabbing people, right? So is the knife bad? Because someone decides to use it wrong. So today we're going to focus on, like I said, this is going to be a several part series. Um, but today, and it's, it's such a vast topic that we're going to try to take it chunk by chunk. And today we're going to focus on images or idols, a call to justice. Now, the last part, and again, the last case that I'm trying to make before we kind of jump into this, is that many of us are not even accustomed to in church hearing the, the full implications of the gospel. You see, that even though there's two sides to it, we're only used to hearing one. And I'll give you kind of example of what I mean. So um, for those of you who are under 30 years old, I might need to give you an explanation for this next image and this next concept, right? Um, so back in the day, there used to be these things called like tapes. And this is how people used to listen to music. You would get a physical tape from a record store. That's how when something new came out, you would go to a store, buy that store, and that was the only way to get the new music that came out. And in that tape, right, so if you wanted to make a mix tape, you had to get a radio on cassette side A was play, side B was record and play, and you had to get that joint just right if you wanted to get that mixtape right. See, I'm, I'm trying to, this is a little bit of history, y'all, because not everybody knows about this life. And in that, you had, I mean, the folks that were really good at this, you had to be organized. You had to look at the total amount of time. Okay, 90-minute tape, 45 minutes on each side. Let me do the math. This song is 3.30. This song is 4.20. You put that thing together. So you didn't want to end the song in the middle at the end of the tape, right? <laughs> so, but the tape had two sides. It was called the side A and the side B. And if one, the, the, once the half of that album or the tape was done, you had to actually eject, flip that sucker over, put it back in, and listen to the rest. I know people are like, wow, you did that? But here's the thing, just as there were two sides to a cassette, a noted author and a mentor friend of mine, Dr. Carl Ellis, talks about that there's two sides of this thing called the gospel. So the first side and the one that we're most acquainted with and familiar with is called the epistemological side. Now that's a big quarter word that basically means it's epistemological has to do with how do we know things, epistemology, the study of knowing. And, and this has to deal with the issue of like, who is God? Is he one? What, what is he like? What's his personality? What, what does he want of us? Did he ever reveal himself to somebody? What's his character like? That's epistemology, and it, it tends to be more abstract, tends to be more analytical and linear. Now, these are all characteristics that the dominant culture typically can ride with and, and appreciate because you don't have to get into practical concerns as much when you have wealth and comfort and privilege. So a lot of times people stay in this area of epistemology, right? It's philosophy without application, and that's a luxury you can afford. But even if it is a luxury you can afford, the problem is there's still not the full, complete story. You gotta flip the tape over, get to the other side, and that's the ethical side of the gospel. And the ethical deals with the concrete, holistic, multi-dimensional components of what it means to live out the actual implications of what we just said was true. 
And as you can imagine, that is something that subdominant cultural people are very concerned about. Because it's like, I got to pay my rent on the first of the month. I got to actually get up and get a job. How is God going to help me with these actual tangible realities? And what does he have to say about the things that are broken in this world? Because since I am a, a, a victim of the brokenness in this world, I'm, I'm, I'm really concerned and curious about that. And so even from the beginning of the early stages of the black church, we see an emphasis on this. He may not come when you want him, but he'll be there right on time. Because we needed an on-time God. There was this aspect of an appreciation of the fact that it wasn't just about theology and, and, and lofty ideals from out there, but that there was a practical implication of this thing. And it's like, yo, if Jesus is real and he existed, then how does that, what does that mean about how we ought to live? And that is the ethical side. And so in this next few minutes, we're going to emphasize that component, the ethics, and really look at... Um, what is it that God requires of us? And what are, what, is it that, how, what are the outworkings of this thing we call the gospel? Are y'all with me? Yeah. If you're with me, say amen. We're going to go old school, sir, today. They got me with, the, all right, with that Fred Hammond, man. I got me. You know, you can go to the next slide. So here are the three components that we're going to talk about. Image bearing, idol making, and image restoring. These are three components that are essential to the concept of justice. Image making, I mean, image bearing, idol making, and image restoring. So uh, let's start with image bearing. And we're going to see and observe how image bearing is the actual source of justice. It, it, it is why this is a thing that exists and something that we need to pay attention to. And it really, here's the easy part, right? If you want to see what God has to say, what the, like, the actual book has to say about the issues of slavery and injustice, you ain't got to go far. You actually just go to the first chapter. Like the first page of the book, literally, it screams at us right there. Because you see, in Genesis chapter 1 gives the account. It says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And in this, and in, in, in this, in this row, in this streak of, of let there be statements, God says, let there be light, and there was. And then he talks about the expanse, the space, the sky. He says, let there be, and there was. And, and then on the you know, next day, you see vegetation, let there be, and there was. Animals get created, let there be and there was. But all of a sudden, when it comes to day six, everything changes. There's like this cosmic pause. And instead of saying, let there be, and just speaking something into existence, God decides to roll up his sleeves and say, let us make man in our image. You, you feel the intimacy there? He says, after our likeness. And then let them have dominion. And he goes over into all the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. Let them have dominion. Let them rule over everything. But I, I want you to see the difference there. As opposed to just speaking it, he says, let us make. And he creates. And then in the next verse, in verse 27, it says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Don't miss that, right? Because you see, what he's saying is that in his image, right? And it's like, well, this image can't fully reflect all of who God is by him just making Adam. Oh, there needed to be an Eve to fully live out that picture, see? Men can't just live out who it is that, that God is, who God is. We can't mirror that alone. We need women as well and to completely paint that picture, amen? Yeah. 
And both, look at the equality that's here. It says that he, he created them, male and female, he created them. There's no hierarchy. There's no structure. There's this sense of like, I, they have worth and value and significance because they are made in my image. They're made in my likeness. And we know part of the implications of that likeness is that they're made to be just to each other. He says, rule. And you can't separate the concept of ruling from justice. Because how are they to rule? Justly, taking care of the environment that God made, taking care of each other because they were both made. And Paul picks this idea up in the New Testament in Acts chapter 17 in a very fascinating passage. He's talking to uh, the people at Mars Hill, these philosophers. And, and, and in the, in, as he talks to them, it says, Look, and this is Paul speaking, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. He's saying, look, so, so what Paul is saying, he's fast forwarding now generations and generations after this initial Genesis decree, and it says, you know what? This is exactly what happened, that God made from one man every nation. What are the implications of the fact that we're all made, every nation finds its, its origin in God? It, well, it means that we're all equal. Amen. It means that we're supposed to, these truths are supposed to be self-evident. That's what it means, right? It's, it's, it's very practical. And he says, look, and, and he has determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of our dwelling place. This is the very basic. So essentially, because we are made in God's image, we have been given identity, dignity, and significance. Our, the very source of our sense of uh, value comes from the fact that God made us and he made us in his image. And because of that, because, of God, because we're God's image bearers, that is the basis of justice. Being God's image bearers is the very basis of justice that we see in scripture. And that's the very thing that the writers of scripture are arguing for. Now, you might be sitting there like the cats in the bar barbershop was when I was having the same conversation and making this point, but that ain't what happened though. <laughs> so you, you're, you're preoccupied with the ethical implications of the gospel. See, this is exactly right, because you might be coming from a subdominant place. That isn't what happened. And why is what the ideal so different from what we've experienced? Well, that leads to the second point, idol making the source of injustice. And so in idol making, and so in contrast to being an image bearer, what it means to be an idol maker? Well, let me get into some terms. You can go to the next slide. Um, what is an idol? What is an idol? Well, just looking at a basic definition, we're not gonna get too deep at it, right? Because it's not, it says an idol is an image or representation of a God used as an object of worship. Now notice how similar it is to, in some sense, image bearing, right? It says, and it is an image or representation but it's, uh, of a God, but used as an object of worship. Some of y'all might have, you know, remember being English majors or uh, studying in school and there's an object and a predicate, right? Like the subject and the object, right? So it's like somehow this thing got switched and what happens when we have idols is the thing that is not supposed to be the main thing becomes the main thing. 
The, the one that's supposed to be the reflection becomes the actual image. And we see this also play, its out, play itself out in scripture as well. You can go to the next slide. <laughs> it's not really too far away. Right there in Genesis chapter 3, it goes and it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent, look at this. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So let me just give you a brief history of misinformation because you see, this is the same thing that came up when I'm having this conversation at the barbers, right? Like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Did God really say what's in this book though? Cause you know, King James, like he had authority and you know, he changed everything up and you know, 1611 and you know, that was really Shakespeare, Psalm 46. And if you don't know any of these conspiracy theories, just keep it moving with me, they exist. Um, but essentially what comes down to this question of did God really say? Did God really say? And the next thing, in the next slide you can move on, it says, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. Instead of being content to be image bearers, there's a shift to becoming idol makers. Wait, wait, I don't need to just reflect something. I can get my own shine and be my own. And so the woman eat, takes and eats and gives it to the husband. Now you're asking, okay, all right, this is a nice cute story, Russell, but what does this have to do with the history of oppression and slavery that we're talking about? Well, you gotta follow the thread because what we see happen very quickly after, if you go to the next chapter, after they take and eat and, and they disobey and rebel against God, Cain then kills Abel. He, he doesn't like the fact that God is more pleased with Abel's gift than Cain's. And so as a result, we see the first instance of injustice play itself out. Murder. And then as you continue going through the rest of the book, the rest of Genesis, the rest of Exodus, all the way through, you, what you see is a continual decline, a continual sense in which the things that, the image bearers that we were meant to be, are, we're far removed from that. And instead, there's this shift toward what Judges says that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They decided to be a law in and of themselves as opposed to of following and being reflections of the law that God had given them. Now, here's where it gets tricky, right? And this is why you gotta look back at the beginning because you see in the garden, what, what Satan did, he didn't deny upfront the existence of God. He didn't reject and say he wasn't an atheist. He just said, did God really say and then twisted and changed what was said. And, and that's exactly where we find ourselves by the time we get to American slavery. Because as I mentioned, when you're talking about a $3 billion industry and when you're talking about a value of being able to see other people work and you reap all the benefits, there becomes all manner of justifications that one can make to try to make that okay. And so if you slap on that folks coming from a, having a Christian heritage of sorts, then they are gonna try to work that out. 
And we see this early on. Uh, there's um, this dude, Pastor Ebenezer Warren. I'm just, you know, picking on him. There's, you could point to a lot of different uh, quotes over the course of time in America. But this is a route around a time. This was a kind of right before the Civil War started. And as he's a pastor in First Baptist Church of Macon, Georgia, this is the case that he makes. He says, both Christianity and slavery are from heaven because their maker has decreed their bondage and has given them as a race capacities and aspirations suited alone to this condition of life. So do you see the cases making like, hey, this is from heaven and here's why. Because they are made less than us, like they're made in such a way that this is the best thing to do for them. This is the, 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 we're being nice when we put them in this state. This is the most charitable thing we can do because they're not made like us, they're made under us, they're inferior to us, and so as a result of that, then this is what it should be. Uh, somebody else made it even more clear when you look at this issue of idolatry and, and, and slavery. Check this out, John Preston, he's one of the, the delegates of the uh, Confederacy, and uh, it says, he, he actually said this, right, this is recorded. Slavery is our king, slavery is our truth, slavery is our divine right. Now, contrast that to what we were just singing, right? Jesus is our king. Slavery is our king. <laughs> Jesus is the truth. Slavery is our truth. Our divine right is to follow him. I give you all of me. Our divine right is to own slaves. So when you look at this and the contradiction of this and the way that this continued to bear itself out throughout time, there's no wonder why there's uh, a wise, why, why people begin to convolute and mix the idea that somehow what was in this book was the source of the problem. Because you have people who are expressing and identifying a value, at least they say they do, and they're bringing Jesus' name up in it, and Jesus is like, yo, get your name out my mouth, son. You're like, you know, <laughs> get your name out, get my name out. You're like, nah, that's not what, I'm, but, but people didn't see that conversation happening, so they just took it at face value, that this is what it was. And so even in the struggle for dignity, even in the struggle for um, a sense of, of freedom, people began to take this idea and believe that this was really where the truth is. If you go um, to uh, the next slide. Um, so we have here um, Elijah Muhammad, who, was, who started the Nation of Islam. And uh, I know this story particularly well because my parents uh, actually were followers of, um, of Elijah Muhammad and then when he passed away, his son, and uh, when I was born. That's where my name comes from. And, and here's the thing. This is what he said. Christianity was a religion organized and backed by the devils for the purpose of making slaves of black mankind. I also bear witness that it has certainly enslaved my people here in America. Now, before we kind of debunk and critique and respond to like the veracity of that claim, if you first for a moment appreciate the reality that he's trying to deal with. In his life, all he has seen is a resistance and oppression and injustice, right? And he's seen it justified and he goes into churches and he sees blonde haired, blue eyed, white Jesus and all the angels and all the disciples. And he's like, oh, okay, this is like a white people thing. And they use this thing to then justify, just like Pastor Ebenezer Warren did, like our oppression. So as a result of that, we gotta throw that out if we wanna see and get free. 
And so because Eurocentric Christianity was so entrenched that many began to think that they needed to reject Christianity as well, and in the result, threw the baby out with the bathwater. But history tells a different story. For even as much as all the atrocities that we've talked about are real, and as much as many, um, not all, but majority, the large majority of white Christians in the church so, you know, were either silent or supportive of this horrific act, as we said earlier, this was not the beginning, and to start the problem there misses the fuller context and point. Because you see, while the transatlantic slave trade started around 1500 AD, there was something that was already in the works prior to that called the trans-Saharan slave trade. And if you look at the slide, uh, next slide, you, you won't be able to see the details and that's fine. But that big continent is Africa. Those arrows indicate the, uh, by, by the size of the arrow how many people were sent from those different African regions to the Middle East and as far away places as China and India. And this is just between uh, this particular slide, 1500 and, and 1900, but the reality is that this trans-Saharan slave trade, listen to me closely, predates the transatlantic slave trade by almost a thousand years. This was going on from 800 AD all the way through 1960, officially. In fact, the, the country, Sudan, where you see the biggest arrow going from, and there's, there's small numbers, and that number indicates over a, a million and a half Sudanese you know, people were captured and sent off into uh, slavery in the Middle East. In fact, the name Sudan means land of the blacks in Arabic. And so, for these folks that are saying, well, you know, Islam is the true religion of the black man, and this was the, it's like, well, bro, no, that's actually not what happened. Actually, what happened was there, there was a trans-Saharan slave trade that preceded, and in many, in some aspects, it was different and, and, and uh, just as barbaric. Uh, oftentimes, the women outnumbered the amount of male slaves two to one and were used as concubines. So when you see those pictures of harems and women dancing with, you know, those, those were depictions of slaves. So here's the deal. So just from that snapshot, we see the trans-Saharan slave trade between 800 and 1960, you can go to the next slide, there were 12 million African slaves sent from Africa throughout the Middle East and Asia. This is mostly Central and Eastern Africa. In the transatlantic slave trade, there were 13 million African slaves that were sent out in a much smaller amount of time. What it took the trans-Saharan slave trade almost uh, over a thousand years to do, the transatlantic did in about four. But here's another painful reality why we have to go deeper to see this issue of idolatry and why we can't just, this is not just about pointing fingers. Because contrary to the popular vision of this thing where, you know, cats just kind of rolled up into Africa, kind of got some nets and just started dragging people, that is actually not what happened. Many times, and in most cases, African chieftains were complicit in selling people from other tribes that were defeated in war as slaves to either you know, um, the, the Arabs on the eastern side or the Europeans on the west. In fact, if you go and you can just do a search on this, you can actually see the, many of these African leaders 
um, in the last 20, 10, 15, 20 years have begun actually to offer their own apologies for the, their complicity as a people in the slave trade. This is one of Matthew Karakou says this, he uh, passed away, but he was a former president of Benin. And it says, the slave trade is a shame and we do repent for it. Now, I put in there former uh, Diomi because the region when this trade first started in the you know, 1500s, that region was known as Diomi. And if you do a little, and, and the reason why this came, and when I saw this, it immediately clicked because I did like eth, uh, uh, the um, DNA test, right, on Ancestry.com. And it came back for me that I was 39% Benin Togo, right? And when you look and you read what happened in that region, that there was a, a local king that was very much involved and benefited and gained wealth through the slave trade. And so here's the point. And now, do I mention this, that somehow this kind of makes what happened on the European side any, like, less horrific? Absolutely not. In fact, there's reason to believe if people knew the full global scope of what was going to happen, they probably wouldn't have been involved. And there was definitely clear instances of manipulation and pressure because of the global economic powers that there were. But it also reveals the fact that there is a deep-seatedness in our hearts. There's something where we have this ability and this tendency to exercise injustice at somebody else's expense instead of our own. And that is a global phenomenon. That has existed in time, and you don't, I'm not just picking on them. You could go before that, that you had the Persian Empire, and the Roman Empire, and the Babylonian Empire, and there was slavery that was a part of these kingdoms that was the lifeblood. That was just kind of how business worked, but each generation made it more diabolical and more destructive, and we got to call out what we see around us and what we are, therefore, descendants and uh, victims of. So here's the big picture. You can go to the next slide. First, we make gods, which is idolatry. Then we play gods, which is injustice. That's the process. And unfortunately, because of this separation between this side A and side B, we typically think of idolatry as just somebody worshiping in front of, a, of a, some type of image. And that, that has nothing to do with this aspect of us, how we treat people made in God's image. But this desire and this thirst for power and this thirst to actually be God's ourselves is the actual thing that uh, is the source of the problem in the first place. So here's the point. God hates idolatry and injustice because they are two sides of the same coin. Sin. He hates them both. Now, how do I know that? <laughs> Again, if you, and we're going to go, we'll have time later on in the weeks to come to dig into this a little bit further, but I'll just give you a quick Cliff Notes version and maybe a bit of a preview of what's to come. We're going to look at how, even in the Old Testament, the, the very foundational relationship, the starting point that we see with God and his relationship with his people is him taking them out of bondage is them hearing the cries and their oppression and, and deciding to deliver them from that state of bondage. But then something, one would say surprising happens until you start to really understand the nature and the depravity of humanity, is these very people who as the, the very core of their identity I, I understand themselves as becoming a nation because they were taken out of slavery begins to enslave themselves. 
And to, to the point where God begins to warn them, hey, y'all better stop this because this is so against my character and you're supposed to be a witness and a shining example of me throughout the world that if, you, if, you don't, if you're continuing to mar my image like this, then I gotta now break this whole thing up and send you out. I can't use you as the, the prime example of what I'm supposed to be doing in the world because you're oppressing each other. And so he sends his prophet Jeremiah to warn them and, and he, he sent a few, a lot of other ones before him, but he's kind of like the last guy to go, look guys, we gotta stop this. And look at what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah chapter five. He says, but this people has a defiant and rebellious heart. They have revolted and departed for among my people are found wicked men. They lie in wait as one who sets snares. They set a trap. He goes on to say, they catch men. As a cage is full of birds, so their houses are full of deceit. Therefore, they have become great and grown rich. They have grown fat. They are sleek. Yes, they surpass the deeds of the wicked. He's saying they actually are doing things that are more depraved and are more oppressive than the people that I sent them to be an example of. An example for. And look at the specific issue. They are kidnapping people and holding them hostage. They are enslaving people. Look at the next uh, slide. So he says, they do not plead the cause, the cause of the fatherless, yet they prosper in the right of the needy they do not defend. Shall I not punish them for these things, says the Lord? Do you hear the plea? Do you hear the sense of intensity uh, that, he, that he's, and so then the last part, an astonishing and horrible thing. If, 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 maybe you didn't get it, so let me try to make it more dramatic has been committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule by their own power and my people love to have it so. What will you do in the end? Now this last point is probably the most significant as it comes to this issue of idol making. And if you don't hear anything else, here it, here it is. Like, l listen up closely, right? Look at what he says. The prophets prophesy falsely. You see, because Jeremiah wasn't the only one claiming to be a prophet in town in the nation of Israel. As he was proclaiming judgment for their injustice toward others, there were other prophets that were like, you ain't got to listen to him. Keep your slaves. We good. Babylon ain't coming for us. God ain't coming for us. He like us. We're his chosen people. Because we're his chosen people, he never would do anything wrong to us because we're better than everybody else. We are the apple of his eye. We are up here. They are down there. And look at what Jeremiah calls them, false prophets. <laughs> you see, within its own scriptural tradition and heritage, there are a group that are known to distort and to deceive, just like the snake did in the garden. God did not say that. You do what you want. You experience what you want to experience, because you don't have to reflect him. You could be him. And matter of fact, we know Satan knows scripture because he starts to quote it. And, and so what Jeremiah says is, look, these, prophesy, these prophets prophesy falsely. And, 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 and so they, people don't listen, just as God predicted. And as a result of that, they get sent into Babylonian captivity for 70 years. And... Um, you know, just the tragic nature that we see. And this was God dealing with his own covenant chosen people. So what do you think is his perspective on a group of people who are not his covenant chosen people? I'm talking about the United States of America, who do something to other people that are made in God's image. 
Will he not have the same sense of outrage? Will he not have the same sense of, uh, of just astonishment over what's happened? So, but here's the thing, right? Because we can look at and we can kind of downgrade and denigrate slavery all we want is 300 years, you know, 150 years in a rearview mirror. But the reality is that the idolatry of our institutions has become more subtle with every manifestation. You know, more scholars are seeing this, so what ends up happening, right? So if some, any of y'all saw the 13th, you see this thing play itself out in that documentary. So there's a 13th Amendment that abolishes the, you know, involuntary servitude, but it gives an exception clause that says, except for in the case of imprisonment or punishment. And so what ends up happening is the same people who had the same identity and ide of, of white supremacy begin to use that as a reason, as a justification, as a way to continue to keep people in bondage, but now it's because you committed a crime. And so the state and the government and the criminal justice system is now weaponized to do what slavery did at first, but it's a little bit harder to spot in the sea because, you know, they broke a crime, they're criminals. And, 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 and fast forward to today, this is the same thing that in, as our debates rage on social media and, and a different thing happens and we see a president tweet something crazy and then the backlash from that. The thing that gets missed in all of this is that there is a, a lack of value for the fact that we're made in God's image and that ought to be protected. And when it isn't, that ought to be radically defended, called out and cried out that this is not right. So I was watching on Thursday night, you know, there was a Thursday night football game and after all of the back and forth and the crazy tweets that uh, the president sent out about the NFL protests, um, I was watching on this one news channel that will not, I will not mention it by name, but they decided to interview people um, who, to see like what was going on. And um, this is what they said, right? So one person said, we see this flag is sacred. And as I sat there and I thought about it, I said, wow, we see this flag is sacred. Is a flag sacred? Sacred is like holy, like set apart, like, like special. And I think part of the problem with this whole debate, and again, I, 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 look, you don't want to kneel or you feel like that's a wrong way to go about the protest, that's fine. But uh, Michael Che actually said it best on Saturday Night Live yesterday. He said, black people do love the flag. But it's hard to ask black people to respect the flag when we know that this country cares more about it than us. Where was the outrage when Tamir Rice got shot? Where was this outrage when Michael Brown got shot? Where was this sense of indignation that something's wrong in our country? But because some people decide to take a knee during this thing, we're gonna be more, we're, we're actually more upset about that than we are the systemic injustices that are around me. That is the problem. That is the problem. So you see, injustice doesn't exist because of God. Injustice exists because humans try to be God. That's the problem. Well, lastly, as we close, we'll look at this issue of image restoring and the hope for justice, right? Because things are messed up, it's broken. We know that already. Tell me some good news. One of the most common misconceptions is that Christianity turned Africans into servile slaves. This is the grand narrative that we see play itself out. 
And it's funny how sometimes things can be so completely counter to what we know historically, but yet still persist as actual things that people believe. But as I try to do in this whole thing, I'm not just going to tell, I'll let you, let the people, you hear from the horse's mouth, right? So when you think of the issue of abolition and black people who fought against uh, slavery, uh, one of the people that comes to mind is Frederick Douglass. And this is what uh, he had to say about this institution uh, in this, this aspect of Christianity. He says, I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of this land. He says, look, because I love this, I hate this but both of them are named the name of Christ. Well, let me be more specific. So, so the thing that's interesting, right, and just to help you understand that this is not just a rhetorical strategy used by somebody who's a great leader. Frederick Douglass had a very profound and intimate uh, spiritual encounter, conversions experience that he shared about regularly. And, 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 and as he talked about it, uh, just one clip I wanted to share with you. So he's talking about his experience after his conversion, right? He says, I love all mankind, right? This is, I loved all mankind for the first time. Like, the slaveholders not accepted. Though I abhorred slavery more than ever, I saw the world in a new light, and my great concern was to have everybody converted. My desire to learn increased, and especially did I want a thorough acquaintance with the Bible. Did you catch that? He said, look, I, I live in this tension with the fact that, yes, I, and if you read the rest of his autobiography, you see he had no, uh, not a whole lot of love for the people that had enslaved him and beat him, but yet he's saying from a supernatural perspective, I recognize that I'm to love all people and that, but at the same time, it made me hate slavery even more than ever. My, fat, my newfound faith, my relationship with God made me decide to rebel against this thing even more. And my desire to learn increased. And he said he got, especially he wanted to get acquainted with the Bible. Now, why would that be the case? Well, we just got to go look in what some of the things that, we, that Frederick would have seen. Like, do not lie to one another. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of his creator. Do you see how someone who might be, might have been in bondage or might be in bondage might be, like this might be an appealing concept to them? They're like, wait, I can put on a new self that is being renewed in the knowledge of my creator, but wait, there's more. He says, here in that image, here there is not Greek, and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave free, but Christ is all in and all. Oh man, there's so much here. So what he's saying is, look, in this image of the creator, right? In this image of what it means to fully be human, to truly be who God has called me to be, there, there aren't these distinctions and these hierarchies, you see, because to the Jewish world, the Greek, and that was basically anybody non-Jewish, was less than them. And then you see Jesus dealing with that all the time. But then outside of that world, Barbarians were people who had access to Greek culture. They maybe spoke the language, but they weren't fully civilized yet. So they were kind of like what we would call, like back in the day, you know, if you look at history, what they would call the mulattoes, right? They were like mixed, and so they were like house. They were in the house, but they weren't fully, but they had more privileges than the, the field Negroes did. That would have been the Scythians. They were considered barbaric, and they were considered just savages by the Greeks. 
Ironically, they would later conquer the Greeks, but that's another story for another day. But he says, look, in Christ, there aren't these distinctions, but Christ is all and in all. There, 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 there's, there's, these hierarchies are completely flattened because we are all made in the image of Christ. Well, how did Jesus accomplish such a feat? How was he able to do that? Well, because he himself is the image bearer. It says in Colossians in the first chapter that he is the image of the invisible God. This is where we get this idea of an icon from. And, and this icon is this aspect that you want to see God the Father, then you look at Jesus. And look at how God decided to reveal himself to his people. You see, he was the product of a crisis pregnancy from a teenage mother. His parents were undocumented as they fled into Egypt. People asked him, his own boys, when they found out that where, he, where hood he was from, said, can anything good come out of Brownsville? I mean, Nazareth? That, wh wh where you from, dude? He hung out with gangsters and thugs and prostitutes. And even if you ask one of them to be sure, you could ask Mary Magdalene, and she said, I don't strip now, I make ministry moves. That's what she said. He, he was racially profiled. Yeah. He was racially profiled. He was a victim of police brutality. He was on death row. This is our story for a crime he didn't commit. The Innocence Project couldn't save him. And he said, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. And as he was on the cross, as he was judging, the, uh, taking the wrath of God and the judgment for each individual sin that we do, but also the corporate collective greed of Imperial Rome who executed him with impunity, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. And in that moment, he institutes a way, a perspective for us to experience the fullness of the kingdom of God. But see, unlike the idols that are deaf and dumb and meek, this, you can't hold the king of glory, the one who is the very source of life in a grave forever. And he got back up and he resurrected. And this is what he told him to do. He said, now you go be my image bearers throughout the world. He ends up restoring what was broken in the garden and says, now reflect my image as you go throughout the world. Reflect what it means to be just, to be right. Speak truth to power and break down these systems and these of corruption, these principalities and powers so that you can actually behold the kingdom of God within you and among you. He actually prayed this in the prayer we know is the Lord's prayer. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And when you think about that line, that prayer, that plea, that is instructions for us to actually be about, well, what is it like in heaven? Well, we already know what God initially intended in the garden. Complete equality, complete sense of lack of idolatry and injustice. But that doesn't just come from the sky. And that wasn't what Jesus' method was. He told his followers to be active, to be actual pursuers of reconciliation, pursuers of justice, pursuers of peace. And just as he spoke truth to power, and as Pilate tried to be like, well, you know I got power, right? I can like just free you or not. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. And you only have the power that my father gave you. Take several seats, homie. That's, but he is the one. He is the one that gave uh, 
our ancestors, that hope, that sense of uh, conviction, that sense of ability to think that they could overcome those circumstances. Because if God did it then, then he could do it again. Yeah. If he freed them, then he could free us. If he decided to come in the form of those who were despised and ridiculed and oppressed, then that means that I have value and I have worth that is beyond what I'm being told. And that story is a story that gives life. That story is one that brings life. Well, as we close, I just want to ask a couple questions just for us to think about. And uh, Van, you can come up. Um, the first is, how have I made idols? How have I made idols? The, 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 the first component is this is to realize that, yeah, while there are definitely systems and structures that exist that are beyond our own individual ability to effect and harm. The reality is that even in our own private worlds, we have power and oftentimes we abuse that power. And the gospel speaks against that. But then the other question is, how can I be an image restorer and resist injustice? You see, this is what we are called to do and called to be. We are called to resist and we're called to challenge anything that would lie on God and say, I didn't say that. You go ahead and be like him and do what you want to other people. And the last question, do I see injustice as a spiritual problem? You see, one of the pro things that are lacking in our current discourse, and it grieves me to my core, is that people who I, I appreciate what they say or what they're about and their convictions, but oftentimes it's filled with such venom and the reason why is because they can't see beyond the physical. It's just you're, you're, the person that's right there, that's the problem. But we know that Paul tells us that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, spiritual wickedness in high places. And there's a need for us to, we can't simultaneously pray and hate somebody at the same, and pray for them at the same time. There's something that God does in our spirit, like he did in Frederick Douglass's, that as he was this champion, they called him the lion from Anacostia. And he was bold and not timid at all, but there was something about doing this with a spirit of humility, with the ethic of love that transforms our efforts and makes them bigger and beyond us. Because God is just and calls us to do justice, we should continue to fight against oppression. See, injustice is not from God. Injustice happens when we rebel against his ways. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for these truths. Lord, uh, we just pray that you would uh, empower us, God, that, to be your witnesses, to be your example, to be your light. Lord, uh, we pray that you would show us our own hearts in ways in which we need to demolish the idols of comfort, of privilege, of um, just even hypocrisy and pride, and instead allow your love, your forgiveness, and your justice to flow in our lives and our circumstances. In Christ's name we pray, amen. We hope you've been encouraged by this message. We'd love to hear how God used this sermon to speak to you. Please take a minute to email us your story. 
Our email address is info at bridgechurchnyc.com. And you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by using at bridgechurchnyc or visit our website, bridgechurchnyc.com. Thanks again for listening to this week's message.